Are you loving the BinderCast? Come experience the magic in person at BinderCon.com. Our next conference will be in New York City, October 29th and 30th. And you can get your tickets at shop.bindercon.com. There's no such thing as like women's writing or writing for women. I was polite, but I just went for it when so many people were just saying no. I had the luxury of writing what I cared about the most for a long time. I want to publish like amazing, brilliant, urgent, strange, innovative fiction. Think about every scene ending with a bitch slap. I'm Lux Albtrom. And I'm Lee Stein. And this is The Bindercast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers. This week, we're talking about breaking into professional writing through personal blogging and how a little bit of marketing know-how can help launch a career. You know, something that's been so interesting to me as we've done this podcast is we're interviewing all these women who are so established in their careers, but there's no one track to getting there. And it's been so fascinating to hear all the different pebbles in the stream they've hopped upon to get to where they are today. I mean, yeah, well, first we have ourselves. Uh, we are not exactly bastions of traditional media background. Um, but yeah, we've also spoken to Emily Gould, who got uh, who got hired at Gawker and then broke into media through personal blogging, actually, on theme for this week. And there's Danielle Page, who went from being a student at Columbia to interning at Guiding Light, right? And, and ri- then writing for Guiding Light. And then becoming a best-selling YA author. Yeah. So our guest this week also took a non-traditional path to her writing career, although hers was quite a bit more non-traditional than some of the other writers we've spoken to. Our guest this week is Charlotte Shane, an escort-turned-writer best known for her popular newsletter, Prostitute Laundry, which attracted a following of over 5,000 subscribers. The project chronicles the intimate details of Charlotte's final years in sex work, And though the newsletter itself is now defunct, the letters are available in a book that Charlotte self-published after a wildly successful Kickstarter campaign last fall. Charlotte started writing professionally when she was still working as an escort. Being a sex worker meant that she had both plenty of money and a good deal of free time, which gave her a freedom that many brand new writers aren't ever afforded. I had the luxury of... Writing what I cared about the most, I think, for a long time. And then writing served a different purpose for me than it probably has to serve for most people who are pitching and trying to sell their pieces, which is a source of income. For me, it was very much not a source of income. I would even turn down payment sometimes. Like, you know, I think the new inquiry paid maybe $50 or something. And I'm like, just just keep it. It's fine. Because I was, I mean, I made my living through sex work. Um, and I had the luxury of kind of writing immediately as much as I wanted to about anything that was on my mind. But also letting different ideas germinate for a lot longer. Like I would have an idea and I could hold on to it for months and then think, okay, this is, I'm finally ready to write about this. And it's not like I immediately had to convert that idea into income. In her writing, Charlotte is incredibly open about a number of things, from her sex life to her boob job to her deeply felt loves and gut-wrenching heartbreaks. One thing she doesn't discuss that often, 
The years she spent in grad school earning a master's degree, first in poetry, then later in women's studies. So my grad school experience was one of extreme privilege. And I don't only mean that word in like the most, you know, social justice sense. The program made sense to me because of its physical location. It was prestigious. Um, and my professor in college, who happened to be my next door neighbor, he was really encouraging that I apply to this program. And I knew it was because he was close friends with one of the poetry professors there. It was one of those situations where you understood the reason why they're telling you to do this is because they're like, it's a guaranteed yes, because I'm going to tell this person that you deserve to be there and they're going to listen to me. So I was accepted, which was really exciting. It was still really exciting, even though I knew I had this like massive advantage. It was still really exciting. Hopefully I still deserve to be there, but we all know that a poetry program accepts like seven people into it. There are a lot more than seven people who deserve to be there. So after a certain point, it becomes irrelevant to talk about who deserves it or not, because the numbers are so great compared to how many can actually be there. But I was miserable in grad school because the program was taught by all men. And my best friend in the program was a really, really talented woman. And one of the professors took umbrage, I think, at her, everything about her. She had this sort of like totally spontaneous seeming glamorous vibe. It never seemed like she was trying. She was always sort of disheveled and like a little bohemian, like very beautiful and really intelligent. And for whatever reason, it seemed like he decided like he was going to take her down a peg. And there were a lot of classes where he would make a point of humiliating her. So there was also, like, my investment in her as a human. Like, I love this person. And there's also just being a woman in a room where a man is is making a point to humiliate another woman. And I could have played the grad school game in a very different way because that man who had been friends with the person who essentially got me into the program was always like, why don't you come by my office and talk about your work? And, you know, let's like spend more time together tell me what you want I know I could have shown up in his office talked to him about my poems done things to my poems that he thought I should do and I could have been published in poetry journals immediately like from my exit out of that program because he would have written the same thing he would have written and said you should publish this person's poem and I wasn't willing to do it. And I talked a lot about dropping out with my friend who was in the program. And I was really unhappy. I kind of started hating poetry. I definitely started hating all of academia. It all seemed really gross to me. And so when I took the year off, I was really like, I'm not even going to look at a poem, which I don't think is true. I'm sure I looked at it. But <laughs> it was really like, I'm not going to write poetry right now. I don't, I'm done with that. That was a Mistake is maybe too strong a word. I feel like it's impossible for me not to be mindful of the fact that in my straight life, it looks great to have a degree from this university. And if people ask me where I went to school, I always lead with that because it's more prestigious than my undergrad. But for writing as Charlotte, it's never, ever come up, obviously. I would never mention it in a pitch because I don't really write about poetry. 
and just because it, it would feel out of place to me anyway. And, and so nobody knows my academic background or um, like institutional ties. Despite her fancy academic credentials, what really launched Charlotte's writing career was blogging, specifically Nightmare Brunette, the personal blog she began to process her feelings about sex work. Blogging brought her a number of followers, a good deal of attention, and eventually, paying work as a writer. My very first blog I started after I was in grad school for women's studies, and almost nobody read it, but I really liked writing it, and it helped me feel like I had more of a writing practice, not to put it in like the most pretentious way possible, but that I was writing regularly. And even though it had a small readership, it would feel like there was some type of demand that I needed to satisfy, which I, I need some sense of external pressure to write and make the writing public. So that blog I took down because I just wasn't cautious enough with it. And like my boyfriends at the time would find it and it stopped becoming fun. But then when I changed gears with sex work, when I started seeing people in person, I still had the old blog. But eventually, I, when I was working in person for a little while after a break of not sex working at all, I felt, I think, just incredibly isolated. And I really wanted an outlet to write about my work. So I was fairly calculated about it now, which sort of impresses me. I always feel like past versions of me are like not me. They might as well be strangers. And I'm kind of like, wow, you're so conniving. But um, <laughs> I, I uh, was on Tumblr. And then once the Tumblr got more momentum, I would insert little excerpts or quotes from my blog posts and got traffic to my blog that way. My Tumblr Got, ultimately had something like 20,000 followers before I shut it down, which is pretty decent to try to get people to, you know, read the blog. So, and I wrote a lot on the blogs. I was so lonely. It was a really important outlet for me. That was the majority of my writing. But through that, I guess, I was connecting with so many more people and probably gaining confidence that I feel comfortable asserting that, that people should read what I've written. As I sort of reached an equilibrium, I guess, with sex work. So I didn't feel like so much pressure to write about anymore. The blog actually became onerous, which is why I took it down entirely, Nightmare Brunette. I just thought, like, I probably don't want this floating around, and I have all the writing saved, which I actually don't think I did save all the writing, but I saved most of it. Um, as an observer of sex worker-created media... It's my impression that a lot of sex work memoirs and sex work personal essays come about because somebody else approaches them or other people approach them and say, you should write because your story is interesting, which I have no problem with. That's how like celebrity biographies happen, you know, or any any of those like kind of People who just think like, oh, I, I sawed my arm off when or chewed my arm off when I was stuck in a canyon or whatever. I mean, that that's not like I trained for years writing. And then I happened to chew my own arm off while I was stuck in a canyon. So I wrote about it. That's <laughs> just the arm thing is plenty. So it's, <laughs> it's like that. It's like that for a lot of sex workers. So it's like they have these experiences and people encourage them to put them out there to whatever extent. I sound negative about that. It is not because of the almost always women who are creating the who are making the 
writing or the book or the you know video clip or whatever it is is with no disrespect to them at all it's because i think that the motivations of the people who have kind of put all in motion are vampiric and kind of for lack of a better word dishonorable and it's like they just want these salacious details and so what the person what the sex worker ends up delivering caters to that a lot of the time so that's like a really roundabout way i think of maybe trying to justify why it is important to me and very validating to me when other writers and people i respect kind of say you're a writer first and foremost you're not a sex worker who was just like let me tell you about this time i like paddled a businessman So Lux, how did you meet Charlotte? Is it is it because you both were were blogging as nightmares? Uh, <laughs> no, but I should for context. Uh, Alptraum is actually the German for nightmare for listeners who are not bilingual. Um, and so I used to be online as Lux Nightmare, and in fact, I was online as Lux Nightmare when I first connected with Charlotte Nightmare Brunette Shane. Um, we actually met when I was doing to keep on topic, uh, I was running a blog called Boinkology, which was my own, I don't want to say a personal blog because it wasn't about my life. It was really me trying to replicate the kind of sex blog that I wanted to see out in the world. I was just doing it for no money um, and on my own out of as a side project. But I started doing that blog and then eventually started bringing in other writers, one of whom was Charlotte. And for me, that blog was actually what led to me writing for Fleshbot, which then launched my my media career. Uh, and as I started writing for Fleshbot, I decided that doing both of these projects was too much time. And so I shut down Boinkology and I kind of lost track of Charlotte. But in the intervening years, I kept seeing her name pop up here and there and everywhere and it suddenly started to seem like like she almost just exploded overnight. Like suddenly I was hearing about prostitute laundry on NPR and I was hearing it had like thousands of followers and all this stuff. And I was just like, how did this happen? And uh, so when we brought her into the studio, I actually asked her because I'm always so curious to know how people just go from, you know, being that person who is getting their start writing and wants to help you with your project and is just doing some free stuff for you and then suddenly is the name that's on everybody's lips everywhere. When you talk about like writing on the internet and internet success and even beyond writing, like people who get platforms and get famous, quote unquote, on the internet, I think there is what I think is frequently a myth, um, that it just happens. And there's this idea that like, oh, you make this great video and then a million people watch it and suddenly like you are famous. And sometimes that happens. And when it happens, like we hear all about it. Like there's like the Zola uh, thing where I think that probably was like genuinely it just like exploded. Um, but I think more often than not, People who get big fan bases actually are putting in a lot of work and it's not just like happenstance. So I just – and maybe I, – I know like you had 
over 4,000 subscribers to your tiny letter and you said like 20,000 Tumblr followers. And I'm curious, like, was it for you just like luck or was it something where you were putting in the effort or you feel like you know, you know how you got that fan base? (laughs) I hope, I hope nobody listening to this feels betrayed, but I think that I'm good at writing and I think I'm possibly even better at marketing myself. And I have a lot of confidence that on almost any platform, I could build a following. Because I think I'm good at observation, which I think is probably the most important thing. And I'll work hard on things that matter to me. So I was really calculated when I started my Tumblr. What I wanted was for people to read my blog. And I liked keeping the Tumblr a lot too. But it wasn't like the Tumblr was important to me in the way the blog was. But I would just look at, okay, like, what are people sharing a lot of? Oh, they like these vaguely arty pictures of naked women. And I would just go online, which I know a lot of people's Tumblrs where this is all they, and probably still all they do. I don't know. Tumblr's like a whole weird new place to me now. I basically feel like it's, I'm like walking into a middle school or something. But <laughs> that I would just go, I would go online. I mean, I would spend probably hours online going through websites that had portfolios of photographers and pulling the pictures that I hadn't seen on Tumblr. And um, I would post them at the right times. I would pull different quotes. I was really good at creating an aesthetic for the blog and not for the blog, pardon me, for the Tumblr. And not like, I didn't spam people. And it, um, my whole thing, which people noticed, which was really cool, was that I wanted the Tumblr to make sense to somebody visiting the URL, not just people only experiencing Tumblr on their dashboards. So I was you know, I would put quotes against different pictures in a way that hopefully deepened the whole experience. I was curating. I I mean, I really did enjoy it. And I think I did a good job of it. And I cared about it to some extent. But I, it was always in my head. I'm like, I want people to know who I am because they're reading my blog. And like, even if they know me through my Tumblr, I want them to also know I have a blog. And when I was an escort, I was really good at marketing too. And in the last year, two years, maybe even three years of working, so many clients, when I met them for the first time, one of the first things they would say to me was like, you're a marketing genius. And I think we're in a world now where nobody doesn't, nobody is confused about the fact that they are always being marketed to. So we're we're kind of all smart consumers in the fact that we understand marketing but it doesn't make it less powerful. Like, I appreciate good marketing sometimes. If I think it's for a really transparently evil cause, I might be like, oh, my gosh, this is really evil. But there's a difference between, like, being pandered to and being marketed at well. And there's a lot of good marketing that I really admire. I'm like, wow, this is actually, like, smart, unusual, and, like, a, a an interesting brain went into making this. When I started the Tiny Letter... I didn't have those designs. Even when I started the blog, I didn't have those designs. I was blogging for me. I wrote so much. Like, 
people who read Nightmare Brunette will see that that writing came out of a place where it's such a cliche to be like, I need to tell this story. I didn't like need to tell a story. I needed to write these things down to figure out what was going on with my life because I was a complete mess. Like I was a successful mess. But I was in so much pain. And the things happening were really fucked up. Like when you're a sex worker, a lot of fucked up stuff happens to you and you're alone in trying to navigate it. For me, it's like there's the writing, the quality of my writing, which is the most important thing and what I'm really invested in. And then separately, there's this process of drawing attention to my writing, which luckily I also normally really enjoy, actually, and think I do in a, in a way that will get something out of my writing to it. And that's how I felt as an escort, too. I was like, I think I'm a good marketer because I'm attracting men who I'm going to really get along with. And to me, that is that's also like what if I look at something else, I'm like, oh, that's genius. It's this really elegant invitation to the right types of people to the right type of thing. A good way to think about it, like a useful way to think about it for people who do feel like especially left out of a system that values some quantitative popularity is that. The writing is the most important thing, and you do have to write something good and worthy in order to feel confident telling people to read it. Like, that's what it is for me. You know, it's like my writing has to be good enough. I couldn't market myself well if I didn't believe I was marketing something worth experiencing. And that was true when I was an escort, and it's true as I'm, you know, not, like now that I'm writing more. Like, I can't, when I send a pitch that isn't confident, I feel really bad about it. And it's because I'm like, that idea wasn't thought out well enough. It's not because like, oh, I didn't sufficiently tell them how great I was. It's because I'm like, no, the thing I'm bringing to them wasn't as good as it needed to be. And so if you believe that your writing is really good and you work to make your writing really good, I would say like use that enthusiasm to to then try to get people to read it and like to try to get it noticed. I mean, that's the more positive spin on marketing. Like, you can't market something you don't believe in, Yeah, I mean, in theory. I think the best marketing really understands what it's putting forth. So it's not enough to just say, I'm a good writer. I'm funny. It's like, but what type of funny are you? Are you, like, a really dry, biting wit? Are you um, just totally kind of, like, almost slapsticky, like, really loose and goofy and fun? to better understand what your specialty is because nobody is just no very few people are just good writers you know it's like they're good at writing a certain type of of words <laughs> what are those things called that people write <laughs> they're good at writing a certain type of text they have a specific brand <laughs> right i mean it's it is it i know it's gross to talk about brands but i do think you have to understand it's like if you were going to present yourself to an editor you couldn't just say i'm a great writer give me a chance you would have to say like i have written a lot of pieces you know talking about this type of book and i would know i would do like a powerhouse review of this book or or whatever it is like you have to know that you're qualified because you have to understand your own qualifications, I guess. All of Charlotte's marketing savvy came in handy this past fall when she decided to stop writing prostitute laundry as a newsletter and release the archive as a self-published book. Like many artists, she turned to Kickstarter, 
and managed to raise $27,842, more than three times her original goal. If you're wondering what her secret was, it was mostly that she already had a passionate following long before launching her Kickstarter. Not surprisingly, it's much, much easier to sell a book to an audience who already knows and loves your work. The book version of Prostitute Laundry is available on Charlotte's website and in stores around America. And with any luck, Charlotte will be writing another book soon. But for now, she's focusing on some of her other passions. Writing for the internet, sending out occasional tiny letters, and, of course, looking up other writers on Twitter. It's one of my probably favorite occasional experiences is going, is reading something and being like, oh, wow, this person's amazing. I'm going to find him on Twitter. And like looking him up on Twitter and then being like, oh, but they don't even have an account, which part of me is like, are they okay? Should I be worried about them? And then another part of me is like, oh, I have more followers than they do. And part of me is always like, okay, well, at least I have that in life. Like this person has written three books, but I have more Twitter followers. <laughs> it's cold comfort, but it's nice. Yeah, I know whenever I'm like more Twitter famous than my like TV writer friends, I'm like, ha I know, right? I'm like, oh, you, nobody knows who you are. And you probably make more than I do. <laughs> you can follow Charlotte on Twitter at Sharo Shane. That's C-H-A-R-O-S-H-A-N-E. You can also find out what she's up to and get a copy of her book on her website, charlotteshane.com. The Bindercast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Follow us on Twitter at The Bindercast. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to bindercon.com or follow us at Bindercon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Albtraum and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lai and Henry Malofsky. Our theme music is Ready to Go by Miss Eves and Quiche.